Well, good morning. Welcome to Mercy House. As I said earlier, my name is Robert. I'm lead pastor here, and uh, glad to see you all. If you are elementary age kiddo, you can go down for the kids' class at this time. Awesome. All right. Well, we have been looking at Hebrews chapter 13. That's what we're preaching through for our summer series. There's Bibles there underneath the chairs if you want to grab one of those or look it up on your phone. Uh, We've been saying that the book of Hebrews is really a theology of the gospel for Jewish Christians. And they're being told that, um, that salvation is accomplished by what Jesus has done for them and not something that they do. Uh, that's been, that, that is taught all throughout the book of Hebrews. And then that gospel that saves them also continues to shape them in their Christian life. And that's what we've been really focusing on because Hebrews 13 is really all about uh, the shaping. What, what is a gospel-shaped Christian who's been saved through the grace of the gospel? What do they look like? How do they live uh, day-to-day life? And so, so far, we've looked at really two topics. And so uh, the first one was about offering loving hospitality, uh, that this is what a gospel-saved, gospel-shaped Christian does. They offer uh, hospitality. And they do that to folks like the stranger and the imprisoned and the mistreated. It's a very gospelly thing to do, to, to love people, especially folks that can't really love you back. Um, and so he gives these examples of, of those that are in great need and need to be offered hospitality. And then last week we looked at um, a verse about marriage, and we, we found that gospel-saved, gospel-shaped Christians honor marriage, and they do that by keeping sex inside of marriage. And so you can go back and listen to those two sermons uh, that are on SoundCloud. You can uh, access that through our website. So the next topic is money. How does the gospel-saved, gospel-shaped Christian uh, deal with money? And I'll read it again just so we can hear the scripture And uh, think on this, so keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? So we want to answer four different questions in the course of this sermon. Uh, We want to answer the question, what does it mean to love money? Right? Like, I love chocolate cake. Is that bad? Like, what, what does it mean to love money? And then why is it wrong to love money? Uh, after we figure out what it means to love, right? Why is, it, why is it wrong? And then how do I know if I am a lover of money? Right? I might agree that it's bad to love money, but how do I know? How do I know if that's me? And then how can I be freed from loving money. So those are the four questions we want to answer in in the uh, course of this sermon. What does it mean to love money? Why is it wrong to love money? How do I know if I'm a lover of money? And how can I be freed from the love of money? So what does it mean to love money? Well, this Greek word that's being translated, uh, love money, uh, is not just a surfacey kind of, you know, I love spring or I love chocolate cake. Uh, It's talking about something very uh, deep within the human heart. 
Uh, there's a couple of different translations that might help us get at this Greek word. Um, the New American Standard says this, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Right, your character. So, so kind of a, going down a little deeper in the depths of the human heart. Uh, what, what are those desires that are there? Make sure your desires are such that you're free from uh, this d- uh, love for money. And then Amplified Bible, which, which I find helpful in trying to understand some of the facets of a Greek word, says, let your character, same word as New American Standard, and then in brackets, your moral essence, your inner nature, be free from the love of money. So it's, so it's talking about you know, your inward posture toward money, and the word we would probably use is don't be greedy, right? Don't, don't be greedy or don't covet. That's a good Bible word, right? This, this idea that you have a disordered desire. And so like last week we talked about a little bit about lust, right? That's a, that's a sexual desire that's disordered. Well, now we're talking about greed or covetousness where we're desiring money in a way that's disordered. Now, it's, what it's not talking about is a healthy desire to work hard, produce wealth, and bless others with that wealth, right? We, we, we read about those kinds of things uh, in Scripture. Ephesians 4.28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So, so it's not wrong to want to work hard, produce wealth, and use that wealth to glorify God and, and bless others. Uh, but this love of money we're talking about is an ungodly desire, a disordered desire to have money. You might think of it this way, that the way you handle your money is in this tightly clasped hand. And you're going to get as much as you can, and you're going to keep it as opposed to holding money in an open hand. Now, my tendency is to hold it in a very tightly clasped hand, right? And say, this is my money. And then when an opportunity comes to give it away or do something generous with it, I'm like, okay, God, you've got to convince me that that's really what you want. And you've got to really convince me that this is something that, that I should be giving my money. And then, oh, okay, I'll open up my hand and I'll let that dollar be available to him, right? As opposed to open hand. God, this is your money. God, I, I, I don't love this more than you. And it's available to your kingdom for your glory and for the blessing of others. So I'm already answering my second question, right? What's the big deal? Why is it wrong to love money? There's a lot of reasons why it's wrong to love money. We'll look at a few scriptures that help us unpack this a little bit. First Timothy 6 verse 10 says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, in plural, right? Evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So evidently this ungodly desire for money is, is something that leads to a lot of other evils, a lot of other sins. It makes sense, right? Like, why, why would an employer treat their employees unjustly? Money. You want more money. You want to keep more money. Uh, why would a company not care for the environment? Uh, they want more money. They don't, they don't want to release um, money to care for the environment, to make sure things are done 
Right. Why, why would someone hoard resources and not want to give them away? Money, right? The root of those kind of evils. Or, or you think about it. Why, why do drug dealers and sex traffickers, why do they destroy people's lives? Is, is it because they're somehow more evil than the average person? Eh, maybe, but what's at the root of destroying lives through drug tra- trafficking and sex trafficking? Money. Money. They're trying to make more money. Now, we do this kind of thing in more socially acceptable ways, right? Uh, We cheat a little on our taxes. We fail to mention certain things in our job applications so that would make, uh, give us a better chance to get the job. We tell uh, a little white lie to return something to the store because we, well, money, right? That's why we do those things. We use our student email and our ID to get all those great student discounts after we've graduated. Why do we do that? Money. Money. We want to keep the money we have. We want to increase the the amount of dollars that's coming into our lives. But here's the worst thing that's mentioned there in that verse I just read you from 1 Timothy. Some have wandered away from the faith. Like, wow, that, that, that is serious. That is the evil of evils, is to wander around, wander away from the faith. So evidently what he's describing is people that were professing to be Christians, professing to be followers of Jesus, but when it came down to it, where they were, were, were met with this decision of either honoring Christ or cutting corners in order to get more money, they decided to walk away from Christ and get money, the love of money. It's a serious Serious thing. Jesus gives us some even more insight. Matthew 6, 24, he says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Here, Jesus links love and worship together. He says that, The thing you love the most is the thing that you worship. And so if you love money the most, you worship money. Again, this is why the love of money, as we've defined it, it, is such a problem, right? This is is not idolatry. This is a worship problem. This is not just like, I I love spring. This, This is, I'm worshiping at the feet of money. Now, I think most of us think of our lives as a bunch of compartments, Right? We've got, we got our money department, our compartment, we've got our family, we, we've got our hobbies, our recreation, our miscellaneous, and we've got God in there. Like we give God His due. Right? We go to church on Sunday. We might even open the Bible up once a week and read a little scripture. Right? Right, we're giving, your, giving God His due. But what Jesus is saying in that verse I just read is what's really going on is that there's something at the center of your life. You may not even know what it is. But it's there. There's something there at the center. And, and it is Lord of your life. It is calling the shots. It is the person or the thing around which you are organizing all the other compartments of your life. And he's saying that that might be money. That might be money. And he's saying you can't have money at the center and also have God at the center. Right? If you're worshiping 
money, you're organizing your life around money, you're bowing the knee to money, then God's not the one you worship. Now, it might be something else other than money, right? It could be your family. It could be your career. It could be a desire to, to be viewed as successful. It could be you just want, you want leisure. <laughs> you, want, you want life to, to be easy. That could be what's at the center. But, but, the, but, but there's all kinds of things that, that can take that center stage. Um, I think if, if we're thinking we're compartmentalizing, what's probably at the center is ourself. Right? We're, we're keeping everything in check. We're keeping the well-balanced life. And what that means is we are at the center. Right? And if God is at the center, so you hear that, that's like a kind of a, a theoretical thing, right? It's kind of up here, up in the stratosphere. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, God's at the center. What does that mean? I read a devotional thought every day. Like, what is that? So what's, what that means is what you're prioritizing in your life is, is worship and community and mission. That, that's what your life will look like if God is at the center. The ongoing worship of Jesus. Like, that's, that's not just going to be a Sunday thing. That's going to be an everyday thing. And, the, and, that, and then the community that is the church, your devotion to the brothers and sisters in Christ, and the mission of making more and more mature disciples. That those things are, are going to be at the center, right? If, if God is at the center, those kind of priorities are, are going to be there as very central to your life. Jesus, again, speaks of it uh, in Matthew 19, he's just talked to a, a fairly rich man who was given the invitation to follow Jesus. And he walks away. And the disciples are kind of flabbergasted, and, and, and they're asking Jesus some questions. And Jesus is debriefing with them. In Matthew 19, 23, he says to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Strong words. And again, he's saying something similar than, than, that, I, that I read earlier from Jesus, where, where he's saying it's, it's so easy for, for money to slip into the center of your life. It's so easy for money to mimic God. Now, why is that? Well, think about it, right? Money meets our needs, though not the deepest ones. You know, I, I think we're reminded of that when we see uh, in the news this week, we see Kate Spade commit suicide, right? I mean, she's worth $2.4 billion. And we're reminded, you know what? Money does not meet the deepest need. We, we think money protects us from harm, and to some degree it does, but not all the harms of this life. I, th I think about Steve Jobs, who at, the, at his death, he was worth $31.6 billion. And he poured millions and millions and millions of dollars into cancer research to try to get a cure for himself. And yet, he still died of cancer. These, these little moments, little glimmers, as, as we see some of the, the, the richest people in our, in our country whose needs are not being met, who, who are not being protected from the evils of this world, the, the, the fall, 
that everyone, no matter how rich or poor you might be, are having to deal with. Or, or we think, well, money meets the needs and protects uh, the ones we love, our families, right? To some degree, it does. But, but then we, we can also see how when, when all your needs are taken care of, that it can also be a liability for coming to Christ, coming to faith in Christ. And we could probably name countless people in our lives who sort of have it all together, in part because they have wealth and they don't know their need for Christ. This is in part what Jesus is teaching. He's saying it's hard for a rich person, which is all of us, by the way, richer than the majority of folks around the globe, it's hard for us to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because our needs, to some degree, are met. And, and it's not until we reach that place we realize, oh, my wealth is not going to meet my deepest needs. It, it turns out, not always, but often, that the poor are those who have the most openness to the gospel. James teaches this, James 2 he says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? So he's uh, addressing a situation in the church where people are uh, giving extra respect and attention to the rich and looking down on the poor. And he's like, oh, no, 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 wait, wait a minute. Oftentimes it's the poor that are the richest in faith, right? Because they don't have that liability of all those needs being met, and they cry out desperately to God. Now, it doesn't mean if you're poor, you have faith, right? And that's not a 100% kind of a, of, of a truth. Um, but, but how do you know? How do you know if you love money? I think when we first consider that question, most of us are like, no, I don't love money. No, no, that's not me. Because we don't view ourselves as rich. No matter where we are on the social economic scale, we view ourselves as needing more. There's probably not a person in here who, who walked in going, man, I got so much money, I, I don't even know what to do with it. I, I, I don't need any more money. No, most of us are thinking, if I only had this, if I only had this, if I, if I could just get this next amount then things would be okay. Well, that, that's an indicator <laughs> that you love money. You love money. Here's some, here's some ways to maybe assess the, your heart, right? So the, uh, if your greatest nightmare is that you would lose all your money, you probably love money, right? Or, or if your greatest comfort is when you have more money than usual, you see that savings account go up, and, and it, it's a comfort to you, a greater comfort to you than the gospel, a greater comfort to you than, than Christ, right? You see, the, you see the, the bank account go up. Or your greatest desire is to get more money, right? You wake up in the morning thinking about, how do I increase my income? You go to bed at night thinking, how can I increase my income? These are all indicators of one who loves Money, or you're willing to cut corners or sacrifice relationships in order to keep the money you have or get more money. Right? You think, well, this once, I mean, I know I'm cheating this big corporation, but they deserve it. Right? And we cut a corner or we sacrifice a relationship. Well, we know we, we, we should be maybe at, 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 a, at, a, at a 
party or we, we should do something for this friend, but we go, no, I can't do that. I'm going to work another day. I'm going to do something to increase my income, and I'm going to sacrifice the good of that relationship. Or a refusal to be generous. That's a sign of a love for money. You, you, it's in a clasped hand. You're not giving it away. You always find an excuse. Here are the hundred reasons why I cannot give my money away and why everyone else can. Right? They can, they can ha- uh, carry the load of caring for the financial needs of the church or caring for the financial needs of folks that are out in our community. Right? That, that's an indicator that we love money. And again, m- money may not be the idol for you. Right? But, but, but as John Calvin, he says, our hearts are idol factories. Right? This is our default. It's, it's to shift from Christ onto some other kind of idol. So we can use those same kind of uh, diagnostic questions right, to help us understand our idols. Like, what is my greatest nightmare? Right? Is my greatest nightmare something's going to happen to my kids? Ah, your kids are probably your idol, right? What's your, what's, your, what's your greatest comfort? Right? Oh, my greatest comfort is I don't have to, have, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to be responsible for anything. I, I am left alone. Okay, well, your idol is comfort. Right? Or uh, what, what is your greatest desire? Right? What's that one thing? You're like, if I just had that, life would be fun. Right? It, it, it reveals... Your idols. Or, or what, what am I cutting corners on and sacrificing relationships for to get? Right? It reveals our idols. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit God, says this, The key to change and even to self-understanding is therefore to identify the idols of the heart. And so I, I'd say a common idol, obviously, is the love of money. It's money. And the writer of Hebrews to this congregation that receives this, this letter is saying, keep your heart free from that. Keep your life free from the idol of money. So let's say, okay, okay, you convinced me I have a love for money. What do I do now? How do, how do I deal with this? Well, this scripture from Hebrews 13, I think, gives us some really helpful uh, truth about how to, how to be freed from the love of money. So what he says there in the next phrase is, and be content with what you have. It's very cut and dry. Right? First command, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. He's letting us know that the gospel frees us from the love of money and the gospel frees us to be content with what we have. That sound good? The gospel frees us from the love of money, and the gospel frees us to be content. The gospel-shaped person is content. We must repeal and replace. We must repeal greed and replace it with contentment. This is what the gospel-saved and the gospel-shaped person does. Another way to say it, it's repentance. The turning away from sin, sinful attitudes, desires, right? Not, not just sinful behavior, but even the attitudes down in the depths of the human heart. Turning away from that and turning toward a whole new desire, right? A contentment that's made possible by the gospel. So content, what does that mean? Satisfied. 
An inward attitude that I have everything I need. Does that sound good? I mean, I need this sermon, okay? I'm I'm just being honest. I need, I need, I, I want the grace of the gospel and the power of the Spirit to work itself down in the depths of my heart such that my inward attitude is I have everything I need. But you're thinking, but I have a list of things that I need. I need to fix the car. I need to update the house. I need to get a gift for someone, right? I want to be generous to to the church, and I want to give money to those 14 students that hit me up for summer missions, right? Like, I, I need more money. I'm not content with the money that I've been given. Well, the next part of the verse, I think it's helpful. It says, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, how do I experience a freedom from the love of money and experience contentment? It is a confident trust in God. It's a confident trust in God. In God. It means God's at your center. It's another way to say it. It's a confident trust that, that, that God can be absolutely leaned on, depended on. He is your center. And how do we know? Like, how can we be so confident? Well, he, he says that he's a God who speaks, right? He, he, he quotes Old Testament scripture to his readers. And he says, God said, what did he say? He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So the writer of Hebrews is is building up the confident trust that people have in God by by giving them the word of God. Now, where's that in the Old Testament? It's all over the Old Testament, right? It's all over the place. But but here's one significant place where this uh, scripture is. Deuteronomy 31. This is Moses' final sermon. We did a whole sermon series on Deuteronomy a few semesters ago. And this is like the big finish of the big sermon. And Moses says this, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. So that, that's, that's one of those places. And then later on, he's talking to Joshua down in verse 8. It is the Lord who goes before you. He'll be with you. He'll not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now, what are they needing this pep talk for? Well, they're about to go into the promised land. It's full of combatants. It's full of, of walled cities. And, and, and they're not a military force, let's just be honest. And they're about to go head-to-head with these combatants and and try to overtake these walled cities. And they're not feeling very content. They're not feeling very confident in God. They're not trusting in Him as their center. They're scared to death. And Moses gives them the word of God. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And then he has to tell Joshua his own private little sermon. right? Joshua, he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. But but not only that, that he's with us, he's our helper, right? The Lord is my helper. Not just a helper in general, not not just a helper, the people of God in general, my helper, my personal helper. Just think of that for a few minutes. 
The God who spoke the universe into existence, the God who's above all, seen and unseen, is your helper. If you are his son, you are his daughter. He, he is your, he's your helper. Now, where do we get this? Lots of places. But here's, here's one example. Psalm 54, 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. It's all over the scriptures. Now look at what brackets that verse. The verse before is, For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Look at the verse after. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. So this person that's writing this psalm, they're in harm's way. Things are not good. It is not a moment of contentment. And so they are preaching to themselves, the Lord is my helper. Just as Moses preached to the people of God as they considered going into the promised land. So I become content via my confident trust in God that comes through my belief in his word. This is how we free ourselves from the love of money. And we free ourselves to be content. A confident trust in God that comes through the Word of God. And that Word is telling us, God's God's always with me, even when I don't feel it. This is why we have to preach to ourselves. God God will neither neither leave me nor forsake me, and He's my helper, because we're not feeling that. And, And so He's with us. But not only is He with us, He's helping us. Again, oftentimes we're not feeling that either. I I don't know what to do with this situation. seems like I'm the only one in this. I'm the only one that can can figure this out. And we preach to ourselves. We we speak the word of God to to us and to one another. And that for God, there's there's just no equal. This one who's with us, this one who is helping us, there's there's nothing in in this universe that he can't handle. He has all power. He's all wise. And so these, these are the things that we hear in the Word of God that builds up our confident trust in Him. And again, as you're hearing this, I, I know I, as I was preparing this, I just feel torn back and forth. Yes, God, I can confidently trust in you. Oh, God, I don't know how to trust you in this particular situation. And then back, oh, I can confidently trust. No, oh, God, I'm not confidently trusting. Back and forth, back and forth. Uh, this week, um, you know, we, we have been, not just this week, but the last few months, been pulling money together to, to pay for parts of a wedding and, and travel. Uh, my oldest son's getting married in Texas, and, and so we're, we're trying to, you know, work the dollars and look, look at all the, the figures. And last week, my truck won't shift into gear. And I, I, I kind of jam it into second gear, and I limp my way to the mechanic, and the mechanic looks at it, and he's like, yeah, probably around $2,000 to fix this thing. I'm just like, God, if you're with me and you're helping me, I do not like the way that you are with me and you're helping me. <laughs> and as, I, as I'm praying in the car, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just praying out loud, and, and I'm just like, God, I know you're with me, but I, do, I feel alone in this. I feel like I have to figure this out and that you're just kind of there. 
right? Now, I know that's not true, especially because I had to preach this sermon this week, right? He's like, hey, I think you need this more than your congregation. Yes, Lord, you're right, I do, right? But we all, we have those, those, those moments, sometimes a lot of those moments where, where we're, we're torn between confident trust in God and wanting to love money and trust in our own self-sufficiency. Now, it turns out this contentment stuff is something you have to learn. It's something you have to learn. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes about this in Philippians 4, verse 11. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. It's learned. Even for super apostle, apostle Paul, right? He, he didn't become a Christian and then boom, voila, he's content. It was something that had to be learned. And how, how did he learn it? Well, by experiencing times of being in, in want, I know that doesn't really fit the whole prosperity gospel thing, you know? It's like, if you have enough faith, you'll always have plenty. Evidently, that's not true, right? That there's times of want, and those times are ordained by God. And so Paul's experienced those times of want. But then he's also experienced times of plenty. And as he's gone back and forth, want and plenty, He's learned how to be content. And he even says, I know the secret. Now, you can see the secret because you can see the last verse there. The secret is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, we like to stitch that on a pillow, but, you know, we, we don't really know the context. But this is the context. The context is contentment, learning contentment. And so he's saying, when I was in want and, and, I, and I wanted to lean on my own self-sufficiency, I turned to Christ. I prayed to Christ. I, I, I was leaning on Him, depending on Him. I, I, I was working out my confident trust in Christ. And then when I was in, in plenty, and, and, and I, I found my heart straying away from Christ, I found my heart thinking, I did this, or I'm always going to be in plenty, and start to have an entitled perspective. Right? He's saying, I turned to Christ. I turned to Christ, and, and, and I became grateful for what Christ had given me. The free gift that he'd given me in, in, in the plenty. And then I was back in want. And I turned to Christ. And I, and I depended on him. And I, 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 tr I confidently trusted in him. And then I was in plenty. Back and forth, back and forth. And over time, he's saying, I learned to be content. I, I learned to, to turn away from the love of money and to turn toward a confident trust in God, which resulted in contentment. Now, the, the, the thing that Christ has done for us is, is the, the ultimate thing that brings us into contentment because he's, he's met our deepest need. A need that $31.6 billion could never meet. Do you believe that? I think for most of us, we, we, we have to say, I think I believe that, right? The culture that we live in, we, we think money will solve everything. If I just had money, it's not true. 
Money does not meet the deepest need. What met, met the deepest need of your soul is the cross. It's the cross. And at that cross, we see God who, ha- who should have forsaken us. He should have left us. But He doesn't. He forgives us. He forgives us. He, he should have left us alone to fend for ourselves, but He doesn't. He, he helps us. He helps us by helping us with something we could have never helped ourselves. There's no way we, we could have dealt with sin and its effects in our lives, both in this life and the life to come. We, we could not deal with that deep need. And God in His generosity dealt with it for us. And He did not forsake us. He did not leave us, but moved toward us with the generosity and grace of the gospel. Now, for some of you, you you've never received that grace of the gospel. And so I want to encourage you this morning to turn away from the love of money or the love of whatever, fill in the blank. Whatever the thing is that you've worshipped and served and loved greater than any other thing and, and, and see it for what it is. Something that will never meet your deepest need. It will never deal with your sin problem. It will never forgive you. It will never bring you into a relationship with a holy and loving God. And the only thing that will do that is by trusting in the gospel, trusting in what Christ has done on the cross to die in your place for your sins. And as you turn away from that love of whatever, whether it be money or, or, or whatever, and turn toward a contentment and the riches of the cross, that's what we sang just a few minutes ago, did we not? Right? All my wealth is in the cross. I don't know, as I, as I sang that, I found myself saying, is it? is it? Is that the way that I live my life this week? And I, and I found myself needing to confess in order to sing. You know, you do that sometimes when you're singing a song and you're confessing at the same time. Lord, I'm going to sing this song and I'm going to sing it loud. I'm going to sing it to you. But I'm also confessing this song has not necessarily been true in my heart this week. Doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It just means your loves have been a bit disordered. It's partly why we need to come into this place week in and week out. It's to, to be made aware of the disordered desires that we have. Confess those. So this will be the first application point for this sermon. Confess. Confess. Confess your love for money. Now, I, just be honest. Most of us in the room, we need to confess this. We need to confess this, right? That we're, we're fearful of losing money. We're bitter that we don't have more money. We're ungrateful for the money that we have. We're unwilling to give generously of the money we've been given. That, that is true of most of us. Not all of us, but that's true of most of us. And we need to confess that to God. And we can because of the wealth of the cross. He, he's dying on the cross for money lovers like you and me. And so confessing that to him. But not just asking for, well, let's, let's make that application too. Then ask for forgiveness. Right? Feel the weight of that sin against the holy God and maybe even against others. And, and then feel yourself released from that sin because of the grace of the cross. 
That's why he died. He died to forgive money lovers like you and me. To be washed clean from that, to be released from that. Not because of something you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you, because of the wealth of the cross. So confess, ask for forgiveness. But don't just stop there. Ask for transforming grace. Not just forgiving grace, but transforming grace. That by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, we would be transformed such that we could leave the love of money and embrace the Christ-like contentment that's ours. It's there. We just have to repent and move in faith toward Christ, that through Christ we can do this, as Paul told us in Philippians 4. And so instead of asking for more stuff, let's ask for a grace-given contentment. I'm, I have to be honest, I don't usually do that. When I sit down to pray, that is not what comes to the top of my mind. What comes to the top of my mind is a $2,000 payment to fix that truck. This thing I need. Lord, I need this, and I need this, and I need this. And there's nothing wrong with praying for those things, okay? Don't get me wrong. He, Jesus teaches us to pray. Pray for daily bread, right? That tells me you pray for everything. You ask for everything you need. A child loving, asking from a loving father. But that ought not be the only thing we're praying. But we ought to also be praying, God, give me contentment in what I have. I come to you as my loving and powerful, sovereign God who's over my life. And you may or may not give me the things that I think I need. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Lord, help me be content with what you've given me. And that comes by grace. That's not something you just decide to do by the act of your will today. You, you come before the Lord confessing the, lo the, the love of money and asking for transforming grace. Lord, help me to leave the love of money and be content with what I've been given. And then, number four, give some money away. Give some money away. This is practical on several levels. So, so one is it's going to generously support gospel ministry. And so giving it to, to the church is going to be a help. Giving it to those that are in need that you know. Uh, being, being generous with those resources. And, 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 and there's something freeing about that. Those of you that are generous and you give a lot of money away, you, you, you know what I'm talking about. And every time you do it, there's this moment where you go, you know what, that money does not have power over me. And by God's grace, he's, he's given me at least to some degree, a freedom to give. Right? And so th th there's something to it. There's something freeing as we generously give. Instead of waiting around and saying, okay, God, whenever you make me generous, I'm going to give some money. So I'll confess that I have a love for money, and I'll confess that I need help, but I'm just going to kind of chill over here living off 112% of my income and I'm not going to give any money away until you... No, that's not how it works. Right? We confess, we ask for forgiveness, we ask for transforming grace, and then we obey. We obey and we give generously. I, I don't know how many times God has been working on me, trying to teach me these, these things. And in some ways I have learned to be content, in other ways still being transformed. And Early on in, in my college days, 
I had heard about tithing, giving 10% of your income. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And that's what I did. And never turned back. But I know, like a year after I had made that decision to, to give to the church that way, I was doing a, um, a youth ministry in my hometown. And we had raised money to do it. We had raised the money to, do, to cover expenses and to pay the five team members that were on this youth team. And so uh, I was leading that team, and so I, I was dealing with the finances, and we had raised just enough money to pay everyone a stipend. And so we got down to the end of, uh, of the year, and we paid everybody the stipend. And then after I wrote all the checks, I realized I didn't have enough money to pay me the second half of the stipend. We'd all been given the, the first half in the middle of the summer. And I thought, I'm, I'm just not going to tell anybody. I'm going to pray. And I was a little bit bitter. I was like, this isn't fair. God, what is the deal? Like, I'm the one that started this ministry, and I raised this money, and, and now I don't get the money. And so there's just kind of this little reverberating bitterness there and, and, and being discouraged by that and, not, and, not, and just feeling alone. Like, God, where are you? Why aren't you taking care of my needs? And then when I get back to school, the opportunity comes to tithe on the first half of the stipend that I've been given. And kind of through clenched teeth, right, I, I, I give it. I'm like, yeah, God, look at this. Look at me. I'm like a rock star, God. Like, like, not only did I not get paid in full like the rest of the team, but look at me. I'm tithing. See that? Right? And then Christmas break rolls around. It was the end of the, the fall semester. I, I go home, and the account that we had used for the team had, had been uh, open still, and so I needed to go close it down. And I knew it had like, you know, 80 cents in it. So I went to close it down, and they tell me that it has a balance in it. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like what, like a dollar? And it was a 1000 bucks. And he says, someone gave this. I don't know who they are. I can't even tell you. But that was, that was the stipend that I didn't get. And, and it was God's way, early on in, in my Christian life, of saying... I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am your helper. Now, I may not be on your timetable, Robert, and I will reserve the right to control the flow. And there will be days when it's plenty, and there will be days when it's want. But make no mistake, I'm in control. And so confidently trust in me. And, and, and the reason that, that we can know that we know that we know that we know, that we can confidently trust in, in God, is His Word. And what this Word reveals is that He has met our deepest need. We're reminded of this every time we come to the table. We, we're reminded of, of the night on which Jesus is being betrayed, right? This, this is how we, Paul taught us to open up the words of institution for communion. On the night on which Jesus was betrayed. Right? We know later he'll be denied. And, and if there's ever a moment where it's, it's just a good time to leave and forsake the disciples, that would be it right there. I'm done with you. I'm not helping you. I'm leaving you. That's not what he does, right? He takes bread, he breaks it, and he generously offers 
these signs and symbols that point to his greatest gift he could give, which is himself. And he says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after he blessed the cup, he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant and my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And, and it's just this generous, generous offering of himself to those who don't deserve it. And that's not just those disciples on that evening. That's you and me. Money lovers. Who, if, if we were offered the, the, the opportunity, if, if Jesus sat down with you today and said, okay, I want to give you great faith. And you're like, awesome. But I'm going to have to also give you great poverty. Would we take the deal? I, I, mean, I think if we're honest, we'd say, oh, I have to go think about that a couple days, Jesus. Right? Because even though we're singing that, that our greatest wealth is in the cross, our, our hearts are torn. And we need forgiving and transforming grace to repent, to move away from the love of money and to embrace contentment in Christ. And so as we receive the bread, we receive the cup, let let that be a reminder to us of the generosity of God. And let that generosity that we received first then work itself down in our own hearts and lives in the power of the Holy Spirit to then allow us to be content and generous in the grace of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, these are hard teachings. In fact, they're impossible in human strength, which is why we come to you desperately in need of grace, the grace of your forgiveness, the grace of your transformation. Thank you that you have provided overly, abundantly more than we would ever need in forgiving and transforming grace at the cross. You've given a wealth that's met our deepest need, whether we acknowledge it or not. You've done it. Lord, some of us come here in plenty. Some come in want. Lord, Lord, all of us, we, we need your transforming grace, Lord to be humbly grateful for being in plenty and receiving that from your hand, Lord, and, and being willing to trust that you are king over all, even in our want, and confidently trust in you through that. And again, Lord, as humans, we can't do it. We need your help. We need grace. So God, would you give us that grace as we worship, God, as we take the bread and the cup as reminders of your greatest gift to us, You wash us clean, transform our hearts, Lord. May we be a church who does not look like the world in regard to how we interact with money. God, may we be gospel-shaped people. May we be a witness and a light and a testimony to the world of what gospel-shaped people do with their money. We pray your blessing over this bread and this cup and our time together, Lord. Would you come and meet with us, Lord? We need you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.